We're continuing in our series through the book of Acts. We have landed at Acts chapter 17 today, uh, where Paul uh, meets with the philosophers of Athens and uh, shares with them the good news of the gospel. This is found in Acts chapter 17, verse, verses 16 through 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some asked of them, some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. Oh, I was going to practice this. Areopagus. Areopagus. Can you say Areopagus? <laughs> Where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and that is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of you, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commends all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Paul shared with them from where they were. He found common ground and shared from that common ground with the people of Athens. And he realized one of the points I made last night or last week was about um, how we share the gospel and understanding the context in which we share the gospel. And as I went home, I was told that that was my weakest point. So you can guess who might have told me that. 
And it was most helpful because that's what we're going to focus in on today is how we can be aware of where people are coming from and allow that awareness to help us proclaim the gospel. Paul, in um, looking around Athens, the word that's used here in verse um, 16, he was greatly distressed. And that's a word that uh, in the Greek is even stronger than that. He was sickened by all of the idols in this place. It made him deeply saddened and a bit angry that these people would reach out and create all these idols and not find the one true God. But even though he was distressed, even though it annoyed him that they were so ignorant of the one true God, when he spoke with them, he found common ground. He found the one statue that was inscribed to an unknown God, and he said, that's it. They know that there's something more, and I'm going to tell them what that something more is or who that something more is. First of all, though, Paul had to listen and understand. He had to understand where they were coming from. Now, it says that the two groups, the primary groups that were meeting with him were the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, Epicureans and Stoics didn't have a whole lot in common philosophically. The Stoics were the ones that believed that there was strong um, right and wrong. They believed that there were ways to do things and ways not to do things, and you have to have the strength to choose what is right, and you have to be strong in all of this. The Epicureans... Um, not hedonists. Now, hedonists just do anything that feels good, anything that they like. Epicureans are a little more refined, but still looking for ultimate pleasure, not based in anything outside of themselves, not based in any um, sense of a, a great moral code, but looking at what ultimately brings the most pleasure and seeking after that. And Paul realized they were coming from very different places, but the answer that he had to give them was the same. And yet, he borrowed from both Stoic philosophy and Epicurean philosophy, or maybe not borrowed, but saw in them connection points. The Stoics believed that there is right and wrong. The Stoics believed that there is truth outside of the self, that there is a moral code, a moral compass that everyone needs to follow. And Paul told them that indeed in the creator God is that moral compass, is that ultimate truth. The Epicureans though said, well, those Stoics, they believe that that truth is so far distant, so unreachable. So out of touch, they wanted something that was among them, that was real, that they could see and feel and experience. And so Paul tells them, we worship Emmanuel, God, who has all of that moral compass, all of that truth in himself with us. Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus Christ came to be among us, and by the power of Christ's resurrection, the Holy Spirit came to inhabit us. So God is, yes, indeed, distant and true, but God is imminent, God is close. So from both of these philosophies, he's able to say, there's a middle road. 
And the wonderful stories are told by missionaries who are reaching into a culture and they find something. They find something that points to Jesus Christ. And they use that something to help people say, he is the fulfillment of your hope. I believe that all religions are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All religions are attempts to reach God, are attempts to find God, are attempts to experience God. And because there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, he is the way, he is the bridge between, between humanity and God. So all religions seeking to please God have the same ultimate answer, which is, or the same ultimate answer if they will hear it, which is Jesus Christ is the bridge. In Jesus Christ, there is acceptance by God. And all of those things that you try to do to please God, those are secondary. Secondary to the acceptance that is available in Jesus Christ, if only we would receive it. Paul uses a couple quotes from Greek literature here. He says, um, in God we live and move and have our being. That's not original to Paul. That's a quote from um, Epimenides, 300 years before. Acknowledging that there is a creator. Acknowledging from their own writings that there's, if we are honest with ourselves and look at the world around us, we will see that there is a creator. Romans 1, in Romans 1, Paul says the same thing, that we are accountable to what creation reveals about God, that indeed God exists. This is probably one of the number one speaking points for us today as we interact with a culture that um, basically believes in evolution that things just happened. So when we reason with people, we can reason from how evolution doesn't really fully explain everything. I mean, the chances of us being able to see, just by chance, the, the thought that our human bodies would just by chance come together is very difficult to believe. And it's important that people understand that whether they believe in God or they believe in evolution apart from God, they are making a faith statement. They are choosing to believe one thing over another. It's not, I believe in science. It's, I don't believe in God. And therefore, I believe in science only. If you believe in God, you can still believe in everything that science has to teach us because all truth, if it is truly true, is God's truth. And what science does is it seeks to discover truth. So there is nothing in science that will contradict God's truth. But we have to understand God's truth carefully as well. If you look at the beginning of the book of Genesis... And the creation account, it's beautifully literary. Day one, God separates light from darkness. Day four, God fills the darkness with stars and moon and sun. 
or, and stars and moon, and fills the light with the sun. On day two, God separates the firmament, or the air, from the waters. And then day five, God fills the air with birds, and God fills the waters with sea creatures and fish. Day three, God separates the land from the waters. And day six, God creates those who walk on the land. Notice, and you probably know this already, but day four is when this account says the sun was created. So therefore, those who say it says seven days, that means seven 24-hour periods, that doesn't work. It can't work. God created. This is the point. And then look at the type of literature that is being presented. Genesis 1 is a very beautiful piece of literature that says God separated things out to bring order and God filled them to bring life. That's the main point. God brings order and life and in so doing creates all that we see. Let's not get lose credibility by saying things that don't fit what the science says, because science is just revealing God's truth. Now, there are some science, admittedly, that has a belief statement first, and much of science today has the belief statement that God does not exist, and therefore some things are presumed that aren't true. But science, in its purest form, looking at for truth, is nothing to be afraid of. That, my friends, was an aside that is not in my notes, so now I have to find where I am. <laughs> oh, second quote. I, I didn't want to miss the second quote. The first quote is that in him we live and move and have our being. The second quote is, in verse 28, We are his offspring. In other words, both of these quotes say that there is a sense that there is someone, a creator, to whom we owe our existence. And another aside, I'll try to make this one quicker. Um, it says we are his offspring, a quote from ancient Greek literature. And that's the only place in scripture that implies that every creature, every human being is a son or daughter of God. Only place. And it doesn't say son and daughter of God, it says offspring. In other words, we come from the mind of God. And I think it's a mistake that is rampant through culture and even through the church to say everybody's a child of God. Not that People are not loved by God, not that God doesn't care for everyone, and not that God didn't create everyone, but there is a, an amazing, beautiful transformation that happens when we are adopted as God's sons and daughters. It's a powerful relationship. We can't rob that wonder by saying that it doesn't really matter, by ev that everyone is a child of God anyway. So if you have questions about that, I know it's sort of a big one for folks. Please feel free to ask me 
at some point, but I'm not going to belabor it now because I am still on point one. Paul listens, Paul understands, Paul declares that there is one true God. That's point two, so I, I am, I'm getting into point two pretty well. And Paul does this as he, as Peter encourages people to do this in 1 Peter 3.15, Peter says, be prepared in season and out of season to give an answer to everyone with gentleness and respect, with apologies to street corner preachers who point out how short the skirts are and all the evils that surround them. That's not the way the scriptures tell us to do this. We are called to have gentleness and respect and teach the truth in a loving way. That doesn't mean that because we love, we don't teach the truth. And it doesn't mean that because we believe the truth, we don't love. It's a combination of teaching the truth in love. That's what we're called to do. Paul reveals the one true hope listens and understands, he reveals the one true God, and he reveals the one true hope. And this is where people get tripped up. Look at um, verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. The ultimate hope, the big story of scripture, the big story of creation, and what it's all about is that God made everything good, but everything fell. Everything is broken. There's sin that impacts everything, and we see it around us all the time. When people are cruel to each other, when we see these shootings of someone whose soul is so broken that they have to resort to horrible acts of violence, we see this in um, countries at war with each other. We see this in our own hearts. When we hold on to negative thoughts about people and judgments about people, about individuals and about groups, this is not the heart of God. So this brokenness has infiltrated everything, and something has to be done, and something was done, and that something is Jesus Christ entering humanity, taking on the fullness of humanity, and in so doing, bringing humanity to the throne room of God. But humanity, as we are, cannot get into the throne room of God. But Jesus Christ took care of that too. He took all the brokenness, all the sinfulness, everything about us that is unacceptable, and he took that upon himself onto the cross so that the due penalty for all of that was taken in his death. And then he rose again to say, I am victor. I am victorious over this sin, over this death. And now, now, the kingdom of God has been opened up to all who will be in Christ, all who will receive this gift. And that's where the people got a little, they turned away. Some of them sneered, some of them jeered, some of them said, I might listen again. And then in the last verse, we find that some did believe. We can't measure the effectiveness of our proclamation by how many believe, although um, belt notch 
evangelism is very tempting to, to make a notch on the belt for everyone. You can say, yeah, I, I won them to the Lord. Our job is not to keep track. Our job is to be faithful with this wonderful message of what we are, of who we are, and who God is, and how God has come in Jesus Christ to rescue us. And not just me, and not just you. This message is glorious, and it's for everyone who will receive it. So, not based in how well we're received, but based in the truth that we believe, let us share this glorious message. And one more thing. Honestly, I think. I think the reason this tripped the people up, this message of the kingdom of God, is that this message says that your ultimate purpose, your ultimate, the whole reason you exist is for the kingdom of God, is for eternity. So therefore, all the things that we put our values into, all the things that we crave in this life are answered ultimately in the kingdom of God, not in those things themselves. As C.S. Lewis says, those things that we crave in this life just point us to what will ultimately satisfy that craving, and that is our experience within the kingdom of God. So be careful. Be very careful in this life not to let those things become more important than your citizenship in the kingdom of God. And one way to measure that is to ask yourself, what if I lose it would devastate me? That is likely one of the idols that you've placed around your personal Athens. Be careful of it. Because the one true God deserves all of our devotion. And the one true God who deserves all of our devotion rewards that devotion with helping us to know how loved we are, how valuable we are. And be very careful as we are responsible not just for ourselves but for each other to carry this beautiful message of love and acceptance, of eternity with God, carefully, with love and respect, and also as the highest value that you can share with anyone. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for the Apostle Paul and for his faithfulness to you as we look at the culture into which he was speaking that day. And then we look at our own culture and we see ways that we might be able to find connections with people. We know that people long deeply for meaning and purpose and acceptance and help us to reach out to them and show them how that longing is answered in Jesus Christ, is answered in the kingdom of God. Help us to be faithful as servants of your kingdom, that, that nothing would get in the way of our devotion to you, especially those who are responsible for the souls of others. How horrible it would be if we honor the idea of family so much that we fail to bring 
families to know you. That we say, I want to be with my family so much that we fail to guide children to know you and to love you and to serve you, which is the greatest thing, the whole point of our existence on this earth. Help us, Lord God, to see you rightly, to see ourselves rightly, and to see the world around us rightly so that we can live faithfully. Lord, I pray for the situations listed on our prayer page, for those that are local, for those that are around the world, for those that are individual to folks in this room and those that we love. And we pray for your hand to be upon each one to bring help and hope, to reveal your kingdom, your love, your mercy to those who are in need. And we pray all of this confidently because we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.